We are a community that loves like Jesus, and my hope and my prayer is that this would be a transformative space for you, not just today, but every time you tune in. We're continuing our sermon series called The Sermon on the Mount, and today's sermon is titled Light of the World. Now, last week, Becky, Pastor Becky did a great job in preaching on salt of the earth, and we're covering the same passage, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how will it become salty again? It's good for nothing except to be thrown away and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on top of a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Instead, they put it on a lamp on top of a lampstand and it shines on all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see the good things you do and praise your Father who is in heaven. So today, this passage, we are talking about salt and light in the last couple of weeks. Now, I know a lot about salt because during my Ironman competition here in the, in two weeks ago, I took in 40,000 milligrams of salt to get through that race. Now, I don't know what your daily allowance is. It's like 20, under, under 3,000. I took in 40,000 milligrams just to have the proper hydration, just to replenish the salt. So we are made of salt. And the world is made of light. So these two elements, these two ideas of salt and light are foundational to human beings and also all of creation. So this passage of Scripture is what I will term a severe passage of Scripture. There are certain passages that are convicting, certain passages that speak to us, but then there are these passages that are life altering. This one is altering. It's a scripture that honestly has been used in the church for centuries because it's incredibly important. And people remember it because it really is a metaphor that we can enter into. We won't forget about salt and we don't forget about light. So Jesus presses people in the Sermon on the Mount to do severe things uh, that are really the antithesis of what the world speaks. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. So this salt and light passage definitely is another rise to the occasion. It's another identifying piece to the people of God. So the Sermon on the Mount is not just a series of pithy sayings that don't mean much. There is there is much, much here that people need to hear, people need to listen to and apply and just embody in their life. And it currently is what I would say a charge to the church to radically change the, the approach in which we love people. So this sermon, the entire Sermon on the Mount, and this passage we're talking about today is meant to be taken seriously. So the salt and the light passage is the crescendo of the Sermon on the Mount. We have the blessed bees, and that leads us all the way to this moment 
like an apex pinnacle of what Jesus is talking about. It embodies all that Jesus is trying to say, and he uses a metaphor so that people will remember how to be and what to do. So Jesus climbs up on this mount, and he gives this kingly persona, this prophet that knows something persona, this Moses-type embodiment. And he declares that we are the salt and the light of the world. Well, we often look at this passage and disinterpret what we think it means. And a lot of times we just reduce it down to a set of deeds. The salt of the earth and the light of the world is just about doing deeds. And I would say that it's much more than that. It is a a set of deeds, yet it's not something that we just check off the box. There is a component of good deeds. He even says, let your good deeds be known. But we can't limit this passage just to a set of things that we are supposed to do or we should do and put ourselves under a should contract with the salt and the light passage. So if we do that, though, we're missing out on some important ingredients of the proclamation of what Jesus is is attempting to communicate and wanting us to accomplish in his mission in our life here on earth. So what Jesus is saying here, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, This passage is layered upon ideas like covenant. It's layered upon the prophets, the kings, the priestly sayings that the crowd that's listening to Jesus's words, and they've been a part of all of covenants and prophets and kings and priestly sayings. And, And Jesus is calling them to a new identity, a new understanding, to have a greater impact, have a larger, like let's say, presence in the world. They understood what Jesus is trying to communicate and was trying to communicate. Yet it's common for us to read this as a singular story where we just cherry pick this passage out and and we put it on our refrigerator, you know, on a magnet, or we just have a sign in our house that says, be the light of the world, or, or something like that. Maybe it's some kind of sticker we have. Yet this is a greater story. This is not something that they heard for the first time. They would have listened and heard, and this would have reminded them of something incredible. Well, Becky has taught me a lot about ingredients. She is a baker over at Symposium, and she does a wonderful job in baking these amazing pastries and breads and and things, and they're they're quite addicting. They're, They're very good. Anyway, so she has everything written out in recipe form. So she has this book, and you can look, and all the ingredients are listed out. And because she follows a recipe... And because she adds all of the ingredients and she doesn't miss crucial ingredients, everything that she bakes is always good and everything she bakes is moist and it looks the way that it is supposed to. Well, if you left it up to me and you said, hey, Kevin, go in there and bake, well, I would, I would probably miss something and not care much about this or that or measuring things like she does with she has a measuring cup and then she takes a knife and measures it out 
perfectly. I'm more of like scoop the flour heaping and dump it in there, scoop the salt heaping and dump it. I'm more of the chef style, you know, pinch of this and oh, that's good enough and pinch of that and take the vanilla and kind of shake it in there, right? Who needs a recipe? Just eyeball it. Well, I would say that that's fine when you're seasoning something. You got a steak on the grill and you just kind of throw some salt on there or maybe you put some put some lemon pepper on or whatever you use to salt your, your meat or season your meat. But baking is a much different story. You have to have the right ingredients and the, and the right volume of ingredients. Otherwise, it turns out flat. And it looks nothing like the picture that you saw on, let's say, Instagram or your Pinterest board or whatever. Well, we are creatures of habit, keeping that illustration in mind. We are creatures of habitual carelessness. Why don't we just take this and that and take what we want, leave stuff out, right? When it comes to our listening, our interpretation, and our implementation of Scripture. When we read Scripture, especially the Sermon on the Mount, I want to encourage us all that we need to add all the ingredients. And those ingredients need to be added in the volume in which they are given, and also the, the history of, of the ingredients and the history of the process, we need to take that into account and into context when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount. So we have to look at the beginning. We have to look at the very beginning story of Genesis as it builds towards this passage of Scripture in Matthew 5, because there's incredible ingredients that lead up to this passage and what Jesus is saying on the mount, where he is calling us salt of the earth and light of the world. So if you remember in Genesis 1, that God created everything in the beginning, the heavens, the earth, the plants, the animals, everything in the earth de declared land and seas and lights and the moon and the stars and the sun, right? And he declared it beautiful. That's the point of that whole poem is God in the end called it good. He said, I, everything that I created, everything that I implemented all the processes that you're experiencing right now, all the biology, all the geology, all the physiology, everything that you're experiencing all around you is beautiful, good, and glorious. He speaks all of this into existence and declares a harmony. He created, rather, a harmony between earth and humankind, between man and woman, a harmony between human beings and God himself. And that harmony, if you know the story, that harmony was disrupted where human beings did something that God didn't want them to do. And so they disrupted the harmony, the unity through what we call the fall of humankind. So it was disrupted. That fall of humankind actually didn't just disrupt a person or a group of people. It was it, There was a disruption of humankind and God between humans as well and between humans and the earth. Things began to get wonky. And, and if you look at the fresh with fresh eyes and you see the disharmony and the disunity that happens in Genesis, and we see murder and rebellion and poor decisions all along the way. Well, right at this point, I would say in the Genesis record, you would have to ask the question, well, God created all this and 
and human beings messed it up. And now what is God going to do with all of this mess? And most of us on this side of the cross would look through that lens and say, well, God gave us Jesus and that fixes all of our mess. Well, just saying that doesn't sound true because that's not true that Jesus doesn't fix all of our mess. We have to look at this through the lens of promise, relationship, and and Jesus and all that it was embodied in Jesus in the history leading up to Jesus. We need to realize that right in Genesis, God sacrifices an animal to make animal skins for the human beings to cover their shame. God covered their shame with, with animal skins. Well, we always, as as pastors and theologians, we always are looking for the Christ in everything. And yes, the sacrifice covering their shame, that whole scene in Genesis where, where God covers them and, and, and helps them out and cares for them and loves them in that way right at that moment looks like, and, and we see that through the lens of Jesus, that that's a Christophany. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a picture of Christ, right? Right in the middle of Genesis. But I would say, first, yes, that, that, that could be true. And, and yes, I do believe that that is a, a picture of what is to come. Yet God is loving those people right there. God is interjecting himself and God is interjecting his, his spirit and, and his love and his care and his, his covering right there for those people. There's a promise given. There's a care given right there. He doesn't wait for Jesus to fix all the mess. He does it. He starts and does it right there. So in chapter 10, in Genesis, you see promises right then in that history. You see covenants started right then in that history. You see blessing given right then in that history. So as, as humankind fell from the graces of God and they, they walked away from, from God's instructions and we see the fall of human to human and human to God and human to earth and, and life becomes a mess, God is, is intervening and interjecting love and care and, and promise and covenant right in the, in the midst of that mess. Well, in chapter 10 and 11 and 12, we have this person named Abram and he declares Abram blessed. He declares him promised. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, the Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will, sh for the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse you. Uh, uh, those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of you. So the major theme right there in chapter 12 is that God is blessing even amidst the disruption. Even amidst the mess, God is interjecting himself and promising huge blessing that Abram would be a blessing to the whole world. So God promises harmonious relationship again. So not only will their, will, their, will their family be blessed, Abram's family, there will be a nation that will be blessed, but then the outsiders, he says that all people will be blessed because of Abraham. 
Well, there's a problem in this story because Abraham's wife, Sarah, can't have any children, but they believed God anyway. They didn't know how it was going to happen, but they leave their land and they go for it. And in Hebrews 11, it tells us that, that he made this decision and he did this by faith. And they look up in the sky and as the stars in the sky, as many of the stars that you can see, the, the, the countless basically stars, they will be blessed in such a way. And, and that shows Abraham's belief. So God is serious about promise. God is serious about, about blessing during this time. And he's so serious that he asks Abraham to, as a symbol, and in this ancient history, this was done through, uh, this act of sacrifice was done when covenants were made, promises were made, they would sacrifice animals as a ritual to issue the promise or to seal the covenant. So God asks Abraham to cut animals in half, a heifer, goats, and, and basically lay the halves on either side of a walking path. And, and this was an ancient ritual where they'd have some smoke and they would have some you know, torches and stuff. And then they would walk through the middle of the cut animals, promising to keep the promise right? The promise was sealed, promising to keep the covenant. Otherwise, what they're saying, when they walk through the path of the cut animals, they would die a horrible death as these animals did. And if you're interested, read that in Genesis 15. Genesis 15. So God does this ancient ritual where he tells Abraham to cut these animals and they get ready to to basically walk through the cut animals, promising that that, that Abraham would keep the, keep the covenant. But God appears as a smoking pot and a flaming torch, and that passes through the animals instead that are cut in half, symbolizing that God would die a horrible death if God didn't keep the promise to Abraham. Let me repeat that because that story just is, is kind of wild to me. And if you reread it, just reread it a couple of times in Genesis 15. Abraham cuts these animals in half. Abraham's supposed to walk through the animals. Yet God appears in these symbols of a flaming torch and a smoking pot. And God passes through as a symbol of replacement as a substitution that this symbolizes that God's going to die and Abraham doesn't have to die. God's going to die if God doesn't keep the promise. And so God is serious, deathly serious, about redemption and restoration and the restoration of harmony, the redemption of unity between human beings to each other, human beings and God, and human beings to the earth. And eventually, in the history, circumcision then becomes the sign of the promise. And this holy, blessed nation took on that act to remind them of the covenant as an outward sign of the promise that God gave them. This would be the sign and the symbol of the harmony and unity with God. So this nation was to be in stark contrast to the world of disruption, the world of fall, that the world would look in and they would see something 
glorious, that they would look at the nation of God and they would see something good, that they would look into this, these tribes of God and they would see something absolutely beautiful. Well, the rest of the Old Testament is this back and forth story of human beings abandoning that promise and then covenant again given. And God continues to pursue and have grace. And as they walk away, God pursues again. And we see again and again that God's people turn their backs and then God would return and God would speak through prophets and God would pursue wanting to give grace and issuing grace, wanting to bring harmony, wanting to bring unity again to earth. Well, when we approach the New Testament, Jesus proclaims a message that is actually nothing new. The message that Jesus is proclaiming is basically harmony that God spoke into existence before. And as the world became more corrupt and disunited, turn the other cheek and pray for those who persecute you and, and such things as the Sermon on the Mount has spoken, that message became incredibly radical because the world had become so corrupt and disunited and the nation of God didn't look anything different than the nations around them. And so to turn the other cheek and to pray for those who persecute you became a pretty radical message. The act became like foreign to those that were religious. So the Messiah in, in the Messiah himself was to be a king that came in and kind of ruled, but he dies a prisoner and is poor. Well, the grotesque sacrifice of Jesus shows that God will die in order to keep a promise. And through this act, we see harmony again. We become the stars in the sky as promised, and we become a blessing to the earth, and God blesses us as promised through Jesus. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old one is gone, the new is here. The new creation is here. The new harmony, the new unity is upon us. And in 1 Peter 2, 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. So when Jesus stands on the mount and he says, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, what he is communicating is that these people are standing on all of this history and are blessed like the stars in the sky. And this was not just a deed. This was their identity. They are the salt of the earth. They are the light of the world. This is more than just stuff we do that we check off a list. This is who we are. Being salt and being light, he is saying, you are people that are, are this way. You are people who embody these things. You are people who are light and are salt, and we are to live this out, and the world will take notice. See, this is a distinct version of humanity that shows the world that we are fully human. We are whole human, not just religious followers, not just religious doers, not just good, good doers, right? We're not just that. We're Christ bearers. We're Christ embodied people. We're spirit embodied people. 
And he says, you are the salt of the earth. Live that way. You are the light of the world. Live that way. You carry promises and covenants and priestly sayings and kingly words that have been spoken over your life, making you, your identity is salt. Your identity is light. Go show that light to the world. Don't hide it. Show it so the world will see and they will see me because of you, Jesus says. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the identity that you give us as salt and light. Lord, help us to be the light of the world. Help us to embody your light. Help us to be who you want us to be. Help us to carry out the identity that you declare over our lives. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the sacrifice that you died because you promised. You died to keep the promise, Lord, that we are your children, that you would bring unity and harmony. And through Jesus, we have that. Thank you for that promise carried forward. Thank you for the promise that you've always you've always given. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.